So could you give a warm welcome to John this morning? Uh, that's an embarrassing introduction. <laughs> to call someone crazy smart where I come from, that's not a compliment. That's less like saying, he's a total nerd. <laughs> but, but I'm guessing you didn't mean it in that way. No, okay. Uh, it is great to be here. I, uh, this feels like my home church away from home. Uh, we worked out this morning that this is my fourth weekend with you, which probably makes this the 10th time I've talked, if you include the repeats, the 10th time I've talked in this church, that probably means I've spoken in this church more than any other church in the world other than my own church. So like, I don't know what that says about your senior pastor here. <laughs> he has very poor taste. He'll do anything to get a weekend off. <laughs> but I love it. And depending on how uh, well we go this morning, I, I might get the November invitation, okay? Uh, so, the, yeah, but the thing is, you've got to do that at the end as well, right? Because that, that's when he'll think, oh, yeah, okay, maybe we'll have him back in November as well. It's also great to be here on Father's Day, and my daughter, I don't know if she's disappeared, but um, she's somewhere in the building, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I was able to bring my daughter this time. I normally uh, have brought my son, uh, but Sophie's uh, calm, which is uh, fantastic, especially on a day like this. Um, of course, Father's Day is a special uh, celebration for many people, but I'm conscious that for others it isn't. Days like this... Um, like Mother's Day, uh, they can bring back memories that make it a difficult day, as everyone else is saying, yay, dads. Some, you know, had really difficult relationships with their fathers, and this is not a day to celebrate. Others, perhaps, um, lost their father uh, recently, or even a long time ago, and a day like today just brings back things you don't want to think about. I'm conscious of that, and, and it's in this context that I want to try and approach the problem of suffering, the problem of pain. And I don't think by the end of uh, our time together, I'm going to have it all sewn up, okay? It's not that kind of talk. I want to just point you to some signposts uh, that point in the direction of where I think you can find answers. The answers are not going to be here uh, uh, this morning. Um, I want to begin then by reading to you from the evening news of India some years ago on October 12th. All 89 passengers and six crew members were killed when an Indian Airlines plane bound for Madras crashed within minutes of takeoff at Santa Cruz Airport at 1.40 a.m. today. The plane was only some three minutes airborne when its pilot noticed a fire in one of the engines. He was reported to have told air traffic control of the fire and said, I'm coming back. Eyewitnesses, including friends and relatives who had come to see the passengers off, saw the plane burning in the night sky like a red ball before it crashed. The passengers had no chance. I remember this day uh, incredibly well. My brothers and I, quite young, watching television. The phone rang. Mum took the call to receive the news that she had dreaded ever since she had heard earlier in the day on the radio that a plane had gone down. Uh, my dad was on the plane, and he was gone. I can still hear my mum wailing as she took that call. A very powerful night in my life. The next few days are a blur. But mum tells me that a few days after the plane crash, I took her aside, and as a young boy, I said, Mum, why did God let Dad's plane crash? 
She has no idea what she said in reply. Ours was not a Christian household. The curious thing about this is I'd never been inside a church. I'd never been to Sunday school. We never said grace before meals. Ours was a loving family, but a completely godless family. And yet here I was, confronted with this incident, and I knew the right question to ask. Why did God let Dad's plane crash? Now, it's important for me to tell you that I'm not sharing this story from my life with you so that you feel sorry for me, okay? Um, I'm not trying to establish my right to talk on the topic of pain. That's not the function of this story. The reason I tell you this is because it is so striking to me that this question, why God, is universal. Even a nine-year-old boy with no religion at all in his life knows when confronted with this to ask, why God? Yeah? This is a universal question. And some of you are still here asking it this morning. Many of us through our lives have at times felt like or even come right out and said, why God? But here is the first thing I want to say by way of introduction to this very difficult topic. Within the biblical way of looking at things, you are allowed to ask, why God? You are allowed to come with skeptical muscles fully flexed, with frustration in your voice, doubts in your head, and say, God, I don't get what you're doing. You are allowed to. And I hope you don't take that idea for granted as if any God worth inventing would be worth asking questions of. Because the reality is, in the history of religious ideas, this idea that you can confront God with your pain is unique to Scripture. Think of Hinduism for a second. Hinduism has a perfect answer to the problem of suffering. Perfectly logical, and it wipes out the need to ask, why God? Within Hinduism, suffering is the balance of karma. That is, every event that happens in your life of a negative kind is a kind of balancing out for your actions, either in this life or, because Hinduism teaches reincarnation, a previous life. So I am to think that everyone was killed in my dad's plane crash because those people were experiencing their karma, either for actions in this life or a previous life. So was I, as a nine-year-old boy, receiving karma. So the thing is, for a Hindu, a faithful, orthodox Hindu, the question, why God, never enters the lips because they know the answer, karma. In fact, even the gods themselves in Hinduism are subject to karma. It is a universal principle that cannot be changed and cannot be questioned. Buddhism has its own answer to the problem of pain, and it is philosophically brilliant. I'm not sure how much of the Buddhist writings you've read, but they are philosophically incredibly sophisticated. The Buddha taught that suffering is the result of attachment. He said, the reason you suffer is because you're attached to stuff. Because you're attached to wealth, a bankruptcy will pain you. If you're attached to comfort, illness will pain you. But what if you're not attached to these things? What if you can so live your life in a state of equilibrium through following the Buddha's path, that you are detached from such things. Can you see the logic of it? The pain evaporates. The Buddha would have gone as far as to say that the real cause of my sorrow at losing dad was not the plane crash, but my attachment to dad. 
If I could somehow get to a point where I felt no attachments to my father, my pain at the loss of his life would evaporate. Can you see the logic? It is beautifully logic. The question is, can you be human and live like it? Well, think of Islam. Our Muslim friends think of suffering as written in the decrees of God. Everything from marriage breakups to planes falling from the sky is, according to the Quran, literally written in a book of Allah to happen. Absolutely decreed by the finger of Allah. So within Islam, the, the question, why God, is actually blasphemous. You, you won't find Muslims saying that. They would say that's disrespectful of the great God who has ordered all things. What about the alternative of atheism? Of course, in atheism, suffering has no rhyme or reason, right? Because there's no origin, intention behind the universe. The universe just is, as Richard Dawkins, that famous Oxford University atheist, once wrote, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic uh, replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and we won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at the bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. See, within atheism, the question, why God, is, is ridiculous on a number of levels. Obviously, there's no one other, on the other end of the telephone to talk to, right? Why God? Hmm? There's no God. But more than that, there's no rhyme or reason in the universe. You can't find purpose. These are the alternatives, friends. That's what I'm saying. And in all of them, the question, why God? The question I asked as a nine-year-old doesn't make any sense. But in the biblical view of things, it does. Because the Bible repeatedly invites you to come to God in your pain, with your doubts, and say, why? Think of Psalm 22. Most people think immediately of Psalm 23, right? The most famous psalm in the world. Psalm 23, how does it go? The Lord is my shepherd, right? I shall not be in want. Really nice, pretty psalm. But look at the psalm that comes before it. Like many psalms in the Bible. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the cries of my anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. What's this doing in the Bible? And actually, there are many psalms like it. Scholars call them the complaint psalms. I love that there is an enormous type of literature in the Bible called complaint Okay. You're allowed to complain, not to the pastor. That's called grumbling. But all these psalms where God's people complain to God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and I reckon there are many long-term Christians who would feel awkward saying this sort of thing to God. You almost think of it like a Muslim would. You're not allowed to say that to God. You can't question God. Yes, you can. Many Christians feel you can only say Psalm 23. There it is. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Fabulous. Fantastic. If you can get the headspace to be there in your suffering. Beautiful. Praise God. But Psalm 22 is there in the Bible immediately before Psalm 23 to remind us that sometimes the cry why God is just as much an expression of faith as the affirmation, the Lord is my shepherd. 
I often say to people who are going through incredible pain, don't, don't think you have to, like a mantra, say, the Lord is my shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd. It doesn't work like that. The Bible says you start by saying, my God, why? Because it's in that mode of personal engagement with God, being real in the presence of God, that you put yourself in a position where you are, you are ready to begin to hear his reply. While ever you pretend, the Lord is my shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's just phony land. So what is God's reply? Let me move forward to talk about what the Bible says in reply to this question. My God, my God, why? The first part of the answer has to do with the kind of obvious point, and I only have to briefly mention it, the problem of the human will, by which I mean we all know that a huge amount of the suffering in the world is the result of the human capacity to say no to justice, no to marital faithfulness, no to human kindness. We have that power, and I only have to mention like place names nowadays to give you a sense of the power of the human will, right? I say New York, you know what I mean. I say Palestine, you know what I mean. I say Rwanda. And you think of unspeakable acts of the human will. And some of you are sitting here today with the more personal examples in your life of the human capacity to ruin life. The question that arises is why doesn't God step in and override the will? Every time, you know, we're going to hurt someone. Why doesn't he just go, he's God, right? He could do it. I believe in a God who has every right to do whatever he likes. He is sovereign. He is over all things. And I don't know the answer to the question, why he doesn't step in and stop people using their wills to hurt one another, except someone pointed this out to me years ago, and it's helped me a lot on this question. Someone said, look, we don't know why God doesn't override our wills, but, but ask yourself the question, what if he did? Every time. We wanted to exercise our will in a way that might harm someone, right? Think about it. Every time a crook was about to pull the trigger of a gun, every time a husband thought of betraying his wife, every time a businesswoman thought of spending money on herself instead of the poor, God stepped in and changed their minds to do the right thing instead. And why stop there? What if every time I wanted to spend a bit of money on myself, you know, I went to the pro shop yesterday and I bought the, you know, 13th Packers cap that I've bought, you know. Uh, what if instead of that I found myself, you know, giving the $20 to Troy to give it to the people of Haiti, will you guys? Yeah. Or, you know, so I wanted to download an app, right? I want the, I want the great app. Here, it's $5.99. I want to do it. And then I, I, I press it and then I think, no, I want to give the money to World Vision instead. Bam, you know, bang, it's gone. What if God stepped in like that and moved our minds in every way he wanted to? What kind of world would we be living in? That's the question. It's true we wouldn't be here asking the question, why does God allow us to hurt each other? Sure. But might we not be here asking, why has God made us incapable of saying no to his ways? Except such a God wouldn't allow us to think that thought and ask that question, right? As soon as the thought came into our heads, how come God hasn't given us a will? Boom, gone. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we can say no to his purposes, and we do, relentlessly. We say no to justice and faithfulness. We say no to kindness. So much so that although many of us are victims in all of this, 
The Bible would also say we are all, to an extent, contributors to the pain of the world. All of us. The Bible's word is sinner. We are contributors. We exercise our will in a way that hurts other people. And in as much as we are all contributors and victims, the Bible says this, there will come a day when God will right the wrongs of the moral sphere, where he will bring his justice to bear on every act of injustice. The so-called day of judgment, which is both a comfort to victims and a warning to perpetrators. Have you noticed in the Bible, frequently, the day of judgment or vengeance is described both as warning and comfort? Think of this passage, Isaiah 61, written hundreds of years before Jesus, but points forward to an anointed one, Jesus, who would in fact bring the judgment of God. But I want you to notice how the judgment of God is tied to the comfort of God in a quite beautiful way. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. That's what I want you to look at for a second. Frequently in the Bible, the, the coming day of vengeance is described as God's comfort to you. I know we often think of the day of judgment as like a theological scare tactic, right? Day of judgment, and we all go, oh, I better be good. But very frequently in the Bible, the day of judgment is God's pledge to wounded humanity that he sees everything. He hears your cry for justice and he's coming one day to bring his justice to bear on every act of evil. That's why the Bible can say the day of vengeance is coming to comfort all who mourn. The day of judgment is a beautiful thing. It is when justice will be restored. But of course there's a flip side, because to the degree that we are contributors to the pain of the world, not just victims in the world, the day of judgment is bad news for us. And this is, of course, why Christians go on and on about the death of Jesus. Because we know that in the death of Jesus, we find forgiveness that we don't deserve, in the death of Jesus, the day of judgment has occurred. How's that for a thought? The Bible teaches that in Jesus' death on a cross, the day of judgment has taken place in him, the only one who doesn't deserve judgment, right? The perfect life given for imperfect lives. And in that moment, the day of judgment was poured out on him so that anyone would turn to Jesus in this interval in this period of amnesty, can know mercy in advance of the day. That's why Christians go on and on about the death of Jesus. That's why we're doing communion straight after this, to remind us that for those who are trusting Jesus, the day of judgment has already taken place. We were found guilty, but he took our penalty away. problem of the will and the pledge of the day of justice only explains so much. What about so-called natural suffering? What about planes falling from the sky? What does the Bible have to say about that? Because that's not anyone's evil will at play, right? The pilot of my dad's plane didn't intend to kill everyone. So what does the Bible have to say about natural suffering? 
Let me introduce you to this guy, Nick. He turns up at my church years ago now. Sitting at the back of church with his arms folded like this. Right, like a few of you right now. And I could tell he was, you know, not like a, not like a big fan of the preacher. And so after I finished the sermon, I went and sat down near him. After the service, I talked with him. Nick had not been in church for 20 years or something. But his baby girl, Alice, had contracted a brain virus that meant that she would never walk, talk, even feed herself. So he took himself to church. He wasn't angry with me, but he told me his story and he said, what have you got to say? What does your Bible have to say about all this? And so began weeks of talking with Nick and his family. And I tried to explain, as bizarre as it sounds to, to our ears, what the Bible says about natural suffering. It says that the human rejection of the Creator has brought the physical creation itself, the stuff of the world, under a curse. So that amidst the beauty of creation, there is something amiss. In the powerful imagery of Genesis 3, we read, to Adam, God said, because you ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Listen to this. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. In other words, there is some connection between the human disobedience of the Creator and the fact that creation itself has fallen. So that creation is toil. Centuries later, Paul in the New Testament would speak about the same thing in highly theological language. Listen to this. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. As complicated as that passage sounds, and man, we could spend a whole sermon or two just on this paragraph, I want you to spot that the Bible teaches the creation itself is in a kind of bondage. The creation itself is groaning. My friend Nick knew the groaning of creation. He looked at his baby girl, knew that she would never walk or talk or feed herself, and he could hear the creation groan. His question was not really, how did this happen? His question was, what does God intend to do about it? And to this, the Bible has a stunning reply, and it's up there on the screen. Because not only does the Bible say that the creation groans, it says what we're waiting for is the creation itself to be liberated. The creation is groaning like the pains of childbirth to the point where the baby will be born, where there will be liberation and wholeness. And as bizarre as it perhaps sounds to our ears, here's what the Bible teaches about natural suffering. On the day God writes the wrongs of the moral sphere, He will breathe new life and restoration to the physical sphere. 
creation will be liberated from its bondage. Notice it doesn't say we will be liberated from creation. That's what Buddhists are looking forward to, the deliverance from physicality. Hindus the same. Hinduism hopes that after many reincarnations, when you've worked off your karma, eventually you won't come back again. Your soul will merge with the soul of the universe. No more physicality. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God will breathe new life where there is death. Resurrection in a new creation. Nick found this so utterly compelling. He did his own sort of Bible study from Genesis to Revelation to work out whether this really was the promise of God, whether what he saw in Alice would one day be restored. Nick and his whole family came to trust in Jesus Christ. Because of this hope. Let me try and illustrate this. Wynton Marsalis, one of the greatest jazz musicians of all time, ranked up there number one or number two trumpeter. Absolutely marvelous. But the Atlantic Monthly ran a story some years back of a time Wynton Marsalis was playing not in a huge stadium, but he went out on a Tuesday night in August in New York into Greenwich Village, found a sleazy jazz bar, tiny little jazz bar, like fitted 20 or 30 people, and decided to do an incognito performance. No one knew he was there. Except just by fluke, the Atlantic Monthly jazz journalist was there. And he was listening to this trumpeter who was sort of disguised and thought, that trumpeter is too darn good. He couldn't quite work out who it was. Until track four, apparently Winter Marsalis stepped forward into the light and the journo knew exactly who it was. And Marsalis played this most gorgeous trumpet ballad that had everyone mesmerized at what they were hearing, even though they didn't quite know who, who it was they were hearing. that and then right at the climactic moment of this gorgeous ballad someone's mobile phone went off at full volume the most terrible bleep bleep sing song thing you know and the venue was so small, everyone heard it and started giggling and talking to one another. The guy took the call. <laughs> Winter Marsalis stood behind the microphone, stopped playing, frozen, eyes arched, the journo said. And in the article, the journo said he wrote on his little pad, magic ruined. The whole audience was just back to talking to one another. It was like the performance was over. But Marsalis was frozen behind the microphone. And then he started to play again. The tacky mobile phone tune. <laughs> From memory, having heard it once, started playing. And everyone started giggling and coming back to him. And then he started to improvise on the tune. Listen to what the journo says. Then he repeated, note for note, then began improvising variations on the tune. The audience slowly came back to him. And in a few minutes, he resolved the improvisation, which had changed keys once or twice and throttled down to a ballad tempo and ended up 
exactly where he had left off. The ovation was tremendous. Can you imagine being there? As the maestro took the tacky, noisy, horrible bleep bleep and wove it back into the beautiful melody and had everyone transfixed. God, the maestro, can take all of the tacky, trivial, failure, pain, suffering of your life's tune. And because he knows what he's doing, he can weave it back somehow with his power, his creativity, his improvisation, back to exactly where it needs to be, to his eternal melody. God promises in his new creation, in his kingdom, all of the awful tunes will somehow be transposed into his glorious melody. And the proof of this has already happened. The resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's pledge in time of what he will do at the climax of time. The resurrection, friends, is not just God's great big magic trick. Ha-ha, look what I can do. It is not God's great big, look how important Jesus is. I I raised him to life. No, the resurrection of Jesus is God's pledge, his first act of new creation. It is God's first sign in history that he can breathe new life where there is death. Where there is injustice, he can bring vindication. Where there is pain, restoration. The first note of God's great eternal melody has started to play. Can you hear it? It's Jesus Christ. And it's beautiful. There's one more thing I want to say before I sit down. Because for me, the most potent thing the Bible says about the problem of pain is not just that there is a judgment day to bring justice, not just that there's a new creation to bring restoration. It is that the God we come to in our pain himself has wounds that speak to our wounds. Will you bear with me for this thought? In no other faith do you get this idea. God created the world to be in relationship with us. We rejected him. He sends prophet after prophet after prophet pleading us to come back. And some of the prophets describe God as a wounded lover whose lover has gone off with someone else and and God is wounded. It's extraordinary language. Just read the book of Hosea. They ignore the prophets. They kill the prophets. God himself decides no longer to send a prophet, but to come himself in Jesus Christ. Jesus is God in the flesh. He walks the earth. He puts up with being mocked. He is arrested, tried, unjustly beaten, and crucified. And in that moment, God himself experiences the same agony and cry of that psalm I started with. Yeah? For a thousand years almost, the Jewish people had said Psalm 22 in their synagogue services and remembered suffering and cried out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Incredibly famous psalm. 
But here on the cross is God. And do you know from Mark's gospel, the words he chose to cry out in everyone's hearing as he died? He didn't choose Psalm 23. That'd be lovely, wouldn't it? The Lord is my shepherd, everyone. I shall not want. What does Mark say? At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Sabachthani. And everyone knew the words. They'd said it in synagogue for centuries. That's Psalm 22. It's the opening line of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's crying our psalm. Our psalm of suffering. He's crying our psalm of suffering. Please don't for a second think this is Jesus having doubts on the cross. He's not actually saying, I don't know what I'm doing here. He's picking a well-known psalm. He knows everyone in the audience knows. And he's saying, I am experiencing this pain. I have entered into your pain. This is a cry of agony that says God knows your pain. Because here he is in the midst of injustice and agony. And in a moment, God will know what it's like to have a last breath. This God can comfort you in your pain, not just because he is all-knowing, but because he himself has wounds as deep as anyone's in the room. He has experienced injustice as profound as anyone in the room. He has experienced physical torture as much as anyone in the room. When you come to God with your pain, you come to that God. Not a distant God in the far corners of the universe who wound everything up and said, well, there you go. No. And I'll be honest with you, this idea is why I have not given up my faith. Because I almost did. The most painful effects of losing my father actually were not experienced as a nine-year-old. The most painful was when I was 18. I guess the psychologists in the room would say, yeah, that's pretty normal. Because I... I watched my friends become friends with their dads at about 18. You know, it's beautiful. Something happens when a son gets to 18. Suddenly he realizes that his dad isn't an idiot. (laughs) And And then a new relationship begins to form. And I watched this happen with my best mates and their dads. And I hated it. You know, I'd become a Christian two years before. I was a full-on Christian, right? Full-on. But at that time, I just really struggled to get my head around it. And I remember one occasion, I was on my best mate Ben's back balcony. And his dad, Art, came out with three beers. Right? Three beers. We were 18. In Australia, you can drink at 18, right? He comes out with three beers, And it was like, this was a moment, you know, we were now men, we drank beer together. It's very Australian, right? Very important ritual. Now, Art included me in the ritual. He knew I'd lost my dad, and he was being incredibly lovely toward me. But I resented it. I'm embarrassed now as I think about it, but I resented it. You're not my dad. And so began a six-month period where I just... I just nearly lost my faith. Because the question when I was nine was, why did God let dad's plane crash? 
the question as a Christian, as an 18-year-old, was, what do you know of my pain, God? Where are you in the midst of this loss? I'm so thankful that my friends were patient with me. I was a self-absorbed, narcissistic something. (laughs) I just remembered I was in America. I wasn't going to end that sentence. And then a friend, actually, a woman, the woman who'd led me to Christ two years earlier, middle-aged mum, she said to me words that utterly changed my perspective. And humanly speaking, they are the reason I can still get up every morning despite the suffering I see around me and trust in Jesus Christ. She said, John, it is okay for you to doubt all that you're doubting. It is okay even for you to feel the anger toward God that you're feeling, the abandonment. All of that is fine. John, please just understand who you bring those questions to. You do not bring them to the God who is distant in the corner of the universe. You bring them to the God who gave himself on a cross for you. Sure, come and say to God, where are you in my pain? But do it looking at the cross. Realizing that the God you bring your doubts and questions to is the God who has experienced every kind of abandonment, every kind of pain. This God can comfort you, John, not just because he knows everything, but because he has experienced all that you've experienced. And in that moment, everything was different. It wasn't like I had a philosophical answer to all the problems of pain, and I still don't to this day. But I have something much better. I don't get suffering. I get who gets suffering. I get him. I get that the God who's listening to my prayers and my anguish and my doubts loved me so much he entered into the world and gave himself for me. And even if I can't work out why he's doing certain stuff in the world, I know that it has to be consistent with that. It has to be consistent with the God who would give himself for me. I can't answer all the philosophical questions, but I can say the Bible says you've got permission to ask whatever you want. The Bible says forgiveness is freely available through Jesus. And we all need it because as much as you feel like you're a victim, we are all also perpetrators, contributors to the pain of this world. Forgiveness is on offer. The Bible offers hope of renewal through Jesus' resurrection. And above all, comfort because God knows your pain. In the great work of art we call the universe, we're not going to be able to trace the artist's hand all the time. Sometimes we'll look at something he's done and we'll go, what? What? We won't be able to trace the artist's hand, but we can always trust his heart because he's shown us his heart in Jesus through his death and rising. So I say, come to this God who gives you permission, who offers forgiveness, who guarantees hope, and wants to meet you with comfort in your pain. I don't think Christianity has a knockdown answer to the problems of pain. But I think it's the only perspective still standing. The only perspective that gets me up in the morning and assures me 
that even though I don't get a lot of things, I get the one who gets it. And that's enough for me. And as you come to take communion, will you just let him minister to you? Troy and I were talking last night over dinner about how communion is not us doing anything for God. I would, I would hate for any of you to get up and take communion today and go, God, I'm going to try harder now to trust you. I'm going to try harder. He doesn't want you doing that as you take communion. He wants you to come in all your frailty and failings and doubts and sin and say, God, I need all that you've got, please. I've got nothing to give you. I just want to eat this and drink this and have you feed me your grace. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you have revealed yourself as the God of great mercy and comfort, of forgiveness and restoration. Will you please take these words and apply them to our hearts wherever we find ourselves this morning. And as we take communion, dear Lord, please feed us, minister to us, meet us, help us just to get you. In the name of Jesus, crucified, raised to life.